Amen. So for those of you who have been following along as we've been going through the book of 1 Thessalonians, you'll remember that the first three chapters, Paul is very heavy on theology. And then he makes a, he makes a turn in chapter 4. He moves on to practical matters, and that's kind of part of his method. If you read the book of Romans, he does the same thing, where he loads up on theology, and then he moves to all kinds of practical matters. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the importance of sexual purity among Christians. And then last week we looked at brotherly love. And this week we're looking at perhaps the most personal issue of all, and that is death. We're looking at death. Uh, there, are, there are many, many of us, I'm sure, in this place who fear death. Probably nothing brought this more clearly home to us than as we just went through this whole crisis related to the COVID virus. Maybe many of us felt fears erupting in us that we had never experienced before or perhaps uh, didn't realize that they were there, but but when there was this ever-present sense, particularly in the beginning months, that that anything we touched or anyone we interacted with could give us this virus which we thought could potentially kill us, it began to make us think more acutely about the possibility of death. read several studies where it shows that in many cases there's really not a big difference between Christians and unbelievers in the degree to which they fear death. And this is an issue that, um, that uh, many people ponder and struggle with. I think about one comedian who put it this way. He said, um, he said I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Not sure how many of us can relate to that, that thought. Well, I think one of the reasons why there's often not a big disparity between the way Christians think about death and process death than people in the world, it's because probably as, as, a, as the church, we don't talk about it enough. We don't teach on it enough. And as a result of that, uh, people really don't know how to think about it. But Paul gives us this beautiful explanation of what death is all about. And as a result of it, we should know if we belong to Christ, we have no reason to fear death. I'll say that again. If we belong to Christ, we have no reason to fear death. I hope that there's some relief here as you heard those words, and particularly as we meditate upon the word of God and what Paul has to say about that. But there are, three, there are three things about death that every believer should know. Three things about death that, that uh, every believer should know. And the first thing is this. Death for the believer is more like sleeping than what we often think of as dying. Death for the believer is more like sleeping than what we often think of as dying. He says in verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, the word sleep was a euphemism that Paul used for death. And uh, it was a common euphemism in the ancient world, just as it is often common today. But as Paul used this word, he used this word for a purpose. He wanted to convey to us something about death. He wanted us to understand that it is, it is like going to sleep. Now, the good part is, is that 
that sometimes when, when in the world people think about death and going to sleep in death, they, they don't think about waking up. But for the believer, as soon as we lose consciousness in this life, we will immediately be in the presence of the Lord. We're going to talk about that in a moment, just some scripture passages that relates to it. But one of the reasons why Paul brings up this whole topic with these Christians is because they had come under the assumption somehow after Paul left, remember Paul led them to the Lord, he gave them a crash course in the Bible, and he talked to them about the resurrection of the dead, and somehow they came to believe that if someone died before the Lord returned, they were going to somehow miss out on God's blessing. And we don't, we don't really know what, what their thoughts were along this line, but Paul is writing this letter to correct them about the return of the Lord and the status of those who have died. And you can just imagine that perhaps there were people who were in this particular church who had died since Paul left. And so the people in that church were worried about them. Well, Again, the whole point of him writing this is so that we don't grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, um, I don't know if you've ever seen somebody grieve without hope. But this is a painful, painful thing. Probably the thing that, that brought this home to me in the most clearest way possible was not long after we came here. It was probably 15 years ago, 14 years ago, 13 years. I'm not sure how many years ago. We had a woman who was a faithful Christian who attended the church, whose husband was an atheist. And this husband was a good husband. He was a decent man. He loved his family. He had the son that he treasured. And his son was living in Chicago, and one day they got that dreaded call that no parent ever wants to get, and that is, is that their son had died. Now this man, this atheist, I had many conversations about it, and I talked to him about the Lord many times. And, and it seemed as if he was close to coming to trust Christ as a Savior, but he, he would just always pull away, and he would say, I made a commitment when I was 18, and because of that commitment to atheism, I, I can't go back on that commitment. I said, well, you know, you can change your mind. You know, you know isn't it a good thing that we're not locked into everything we used to think when we were 18? Some of you haven't made it to 18 yet, but you'll understand when you're my age. It is a wonderful thing that we're not locked. But he just, he just would not, he did not, even though he, 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 on one level it seemed as if he lived like there was a God. On another level he, he rejected God. And, but, but, but then I had to interact with him with the loss of a son. So here's a man who's an atheist who's convinced that when you die, that's it. You go back, you return to the state that you were before you were born, and that's it. Is there any way to console a person who has embraced the full weight of the worldview that they hold, that there's nothing beyond this life. When they've lost their child, who they love more than their own life. I remember standing there in their living room and hearing him howling with an empty cry. I'll never see my son again. I'll never see my son again. I'll never see my son again. Forever and ever and ever and ever, I will never see my son again. That's how the world grieves, death. But the truth of the matter is, is that we don't have to grieve that way. In fact, we have a hope. 
We have a hope in Jesus. And that hope in Jesus rests in the resurrection of the dead, just as Jesus was raised from the dead. So too, who, all those who are in him will be raised to eternal life with him. So Paul compares death to sleep. Have you ever maybe taken a long drive or had a long day? Maybe you got up really early in the morning. Maybe you got up at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and you worked, 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 worked all day, and then it's 8, 9, 10, 11 o'clock, and you can just barely keep your eyes open. You were, <laughs> there's a lot, of, a lot of moms in here like, oh, I know. <laughs> you can barely keep your eyes open, and all you think about is, is just to be able to hit that pillow and go to sleep because you know how much better you're going to feel afterward. That's how Paul compares death to going to sleep. This world delivers to us lots of hard knocks. It delivers to us lots of difficulties, lots of trials, lots of painful things. But Paul compares our dying to that of going to sleep. We bring all of those pains and trials and tiredness and brokenness with us. And, and, then, and then when we die, we immediately wake up in the presence of God as his children and there is no more there is no more brokenness. There is no more tiredness. There is no more weakness. There is no more pain. There is no more trouble. We are in the presence of God. We are then at that moment everything we were made to be. I love how um, the Apostle Paul puts it. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, he says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. What is he saying? It's preferable to be with the Lord than to be here. That's the way we are to look at death. Death isn't what we would normally think of it. Sometimes we're scared because we don't know what's on the other side, but it's important to remember that he is the one who's on the other side. And because he is there, it's okay. It's okay. I don't know if you've ever seen a Christian who, who really lived this. We had a couple of ladies. Uh, Jenny Farrar. How many of you remember Jenny? Jenny Farrar. And, um, and uh, Brenda Batello. Anybody remember Brenda Batello? They, they were both were terminally ill at the same time. Roughly the same period of time. And um, I've never seen such joy in people before awaiting death. They knew that they were going to die. They knew that their time was short, and all they could talk about was what it was going to be like when they, when they met the Lord. And I believe God gives us grace in times like that. And we saw this so beautifully illustrated in their lives. Or you think about, think about one person, um, Rob Webb. I've told this story before, but, it, but it, it's, it's, it's one of the most amazing, amazing stories, one of the most amazing experiences I've ever I've ever had. It was in the hospital. I believe it was at Rhode Island Hospital. And, and Rob was in bad shape. And his family and his sweet wife, Jane, was right there with him. And the rest of the family were gathered around his bedside. And the doctor was there as I walked in. And he was delivering some bad news to Rob. And they're saying, we're going we're to sedate you. We're going to try to save your life. But, but there's no guarantee that you're going to come back from this. And finally, the doctor steps out of the room. The room is quiet. No one is saying a word. And then Rob calls me over, and I went to stand next to Rob at his bedside. And, and this was going to just happen in a few minutes when they were going to sedate him. And uh, he said, well, I just got some bad news from the doc. He said, 
He said, they're, they're going to they're gonna try to save my life. And he said, I'm going to fight to live. And you know I'm a fighter. And, and Rob went through a, a long stretch where he battled leukemia. He says, you know I'm a fighter. He said, but if I don't make it, I want you to know it's going to be a party. <laughs> he said that. And he didn't make it in this life. But now he's celebrating that party in the presence of the Lord. We don't grieve as those without hope, as Christians, because of what God has done for us. And so when we think about death, we need to think about it more as going to sleep and ready to wake up in a, in a new and better reality than we do the way that we normally often think about death. Number two, God will not leave any of his people behind. God will not leave any of his people behind. It says in verses 14 and 15, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring, him, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now Paul couples good theology, of course he's an apostle, with good logic, with good logic. As Christ died and is alive, so all of us who fall in asleep in him will be alive. When Jesus returns, he'll bring all of his people with him. So often, I don't know if, if you're like me, but, but so often I feel so unworthy of God's love. You ever feel that way? I mean, why would God love a wretched sinner like me? And sometimes when I think about him, I think, well, Lord, uh, if... If anybody's going to be forgotten or left behind, it'll be me. You ever feel that way? You ever feel that way that, that uh, when you think about the grand scale of the kingdom and all of the people that are in the kingdom and all the amazing people that God has brought along, you say, well, well I'm just an insignificant little, little piece of that. But don't you love that it says that when the Lord returns, he's going to bring all of his people with him. God doesn't forget a, a single one. Just as Christ has been raised from the dead, all of us who have faith in him and trust in him know that we too will be raised from the dead also. It's because of his resurrection that we have hope in our own resurrection. And we have the promise that through faith in him, through a relationship with him, when the Lord returns, we shall return with him if we have died at that point. If not, then we're going to witness it, which we're going to talk about in a moment. I love how Romans 10, 11, it says this. Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. You trust in him, he's not going to leave you behind. He's not going to leave you behind. He's not going to forget about you. You're not going to be just the one who's left by the side of the road when everyone else is going to the party. No, he will not forget you. Anyone who puts their trust in him will not be put to shame. Think about, um, think about a mother with her young baby. Once I, I visited a mom, she was in the hospital, and she was just staring at her little baby who was just born, just staring, looking at the baby's eyes and nose and ears and fingers and toes. And I said, how come you're staring so much at that little baby? And she said, I want to memorize every bit of this baby. So if anybody tries to take that baby, I can, I'll know exactly which one is mine. 
You ever, you ever uh, know somebody who ever did anything like that? Just such care, such love, such commitment, memorize every, everything. Well, you know, our God is omniscient. He's all-powerful. He knows everything. There's not a one of us, no matter, no matter how much in the background we feel that we are, that, that will be forgotten. No, what, what takes place in your life is important to him. He loves you. He cares for you. He died for you. And when he comes back, if, we're, if we've left this world, if we've departed this world, we will return with him. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And then the third thing is that we need to remember is that what is awaiting us is far better than anything we've ever known. What is awaiting us is far better than anything we've ever known. Verses 16 through 18, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the loud sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So here's one of the amazing things. Like, like sometimes we read the Bible and we think about the theoretical stuff, right? Like, like uh, oh, that's so interesting. Let's, let's talk about the return of the Lord. There are going to be trumpets and there's going to the, be a loud shout and there's going to be... Uh, the Lord's going to descend, and we can kind of read that as, as a textbook. But, but think about it. Put yourself there. The fact is that if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are going to witness everything that Paul is talking about. You're going to see it with your own eyes. These realities are going to be true. We can put ourselves in that setting. Maybe, maybe the Lord will come back in our lifetime, and so we'll witness it from here, maybe, maybe, we will, maybe we will die and, and we will witness it from above, but one way or the other, we're going to witness all of the events that are described in these verses. And so think about it as we, as, we, as we do that. Think about the fact that you will see this. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Now prior to modern times, commanders always led their forces into battle. Now it's a little bit different. Because, because when you, when you um, uh, because of the devastating nature of, of weapons today, sometimes we've got to keep our, our leaders back. But that's not the case with the Lord. The Lord is going to lead the descent. There are no weapons that have ever been constructed that can do anything that would oppose him. He is going to come and he is going to lead his people. And it tells us with a cry of command. Now, it doesn't tell us specifically who makes this cry of command, but we assume it must be the Lord because the Lord doesn't take commands from anybody. There's not somebody else who could give a command and say, okay, Lord, go. No, the Lord is going to be the one who's taking charge of this. And I, I love this because this, this runs so far against the way that the world thinks about God and the, and the way that we should think about him. You know, the world wants to construct God in their own image. Most people you run into... We think about, okay, what kind of God do I want to believe in? This God will do certain things. This God uh, 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 won't do certain things. And, I, and, and I'm only going to believe in a God that does the things I want him to do. Here's the thing. God is who he is regardless of who we want him to be. We take our commands from him, not the way, other way around. There's one theologian. He said this. He said, you know, for years and years and years I studied God and I... And I had him under the microscope, and I analyzed him, and I looked at him, and I, and, I, and I parsed God. And then all of a sudden, he said, I realized that it was the other way around. It was not me who had God under the microscope. It was God who had me under the microscope, and everything changed. You see, God gives this cry of command. He is the commander. He is the leader, and we take our orders from him. 
We have this, we have this uh, picture. We have this picture of him, of him uh, 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 coming back. And why is he doing this? Well, this is the moment that the world has been waiting for since the very beginning. Remember, God created human beings to live with him in a garden. And, this, and the intention of this garden was to spread out over the, over the entire globe and we were to live and commune with him and live in relationship with him and we were to experience the fullness of his presence. But instead of obeying him, we rebelled against him and as a result of our rebellion against him, heaven and earth were separated. And as a consequence to that, God made a plan. In Genesis 3.15, he made a plan that he was going to come back and redeem his people and save his people. And so eventually he sent his son to die on the cross for the sins of human beings who had rebelled against him. And as a, as a result of that, through the cross, we can be reconciled to God. We can have a relationship with God. And now we come to the end where God now comes back and he will make this world his holy habitation upon which we will live together with him. And so now he is coming back to that which he owns. We have this picture of, of, of God and his return. Excuse me. That's the first time I've done that, so don't get mad at me for walking around. Okay, but, but that, is, that is such an amazing thing. It's always been God's plan to live with his people. We see this in the Old Testament. We have Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 26 and 27. It says this, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. He says, my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see that? That is God's intention. God is a relational God. His plan is to live with us forever. Think about that. Then in the New Testament, we read in the book of Revelation, it says this, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp of the sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Think about that. That's the picture that's drawn for us in Scripture about God coming back for his own and us living with him forever and ever and ever. We also notice that there will be a, the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Think about the archangel. If we look at Daniel chapter uh, uh, 12, verses 1 and 2, it identifies this archangel as Michael. And uh, there will be the voice of an archangel calling the heavenly host with him. And then we read that, that, that there will be accompanied by the, the sound of the trumpet of God. If you look in uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 14, God is the one who blows the trumpet of God. What, a, what an incredible sight. Can you imagine what that will be like? When we think about trumpets, we think about instruments for music. But trumpets were used in warfare. For the commander to tell his people where they needed to be in the battlefield. God is going to come back. God is going to have the victory. One day God will rule without any opposition. For we know that the knowledge of the glory of God shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what's awaiting us. That's what you will see. That's what one day you will know, you will experience. This world in which we see so much opposition to God and the plans of God in the work of God, that opposition will one day come to a complete and utter and total end. And then he tells us that the dead in Christ will rise first. Far from being left out, the dead in Christ, they will be honored. Imagine what that will be like. David and Moses, Adam and Noah. 
I, I know a few of you want to give Adam a piece of your mind. I, we understand that. But Adam and, Adam and Noah, you have Ruth and Esther. Think about people like William Tyndale, John Calvin, John Wesley. Think about Joel Bach, Olive Kinsman, Bob Kay. Return with the Lord. His people, he never forgets any of them. He brings them. And one day we will witness it with our own eyes. There'll be this grand reunion in the sky, it tells us in verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, there's, this is full of symbolic language. Clouds were the, the space that God dwelled. Clouds, uh, if you remember in the Old Testament, Israel, as they went through the wilderness period, God led them with a cloud by day. Or Jesus, when he was taken up into heaven, he was hidden in a cloud. You can read about that in Acts chapter 1. The cloud, clouds are symbolic of the presence of God, and it says we will meet him in the air. That's a significant word there. Why is that? Because the Bible, in the Bible, the, the, the idea is, is that the air is the domain of evil. In fact, Satan is called the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So what is it telling us? It's telling us that there will be no place where God's great kingdom will be uh, removed. Heaven and earth will be merged. God will rule over all things. He's going to bring all wickedness under condemnation. He's going to bring an end to all of these things. And we will spend eternity with him in his presence, in his glory, in his wonder. It says that, it says that we will meet the Lord in the air. This word there for meet was very often used for... Um, meeting somebody who was um, a dignitary. So, for instance, if you had an emperor who went to a city, um, the people of the city would actually meet the emperor outside of the city, and then they would escort the emperor back into the city. And all of the people, first there would be the officials of the city, then there would be the residents of the city, and then they would line the way, and then as the dignitary came back into the city, as the emperor came back into the city, they would, they would form a parade and they would welcome him as he came back. The same word is used to Paul in Acts chapter 28 when he met the believers of Rome outside of the city of Rome and then they escorted him into the city. And so you can imagine the sight. You have, you have the, the believers from all eternity, those who have gone home to be with the Lord, now with the believers who are here when the Lord returns, all meeting in one place and then we escort the Lord to his proper domain and his kingdom. What, a, what an incredible picture that we have of when the Lord comes back and all of us in, who are in Christ will see that. We will witness it. We'll be part of that. Can you imagine what that'll be like? To see the Lord, to welcome the Lord, to watch the Lord accomplish all that he promised that he would do after we rebelled against him. And then it says, we will always be with the Lord and he says, encourage one another with these words. Well, I'd like to look at, for application, five encouraging things and one word of warning. Five encouraging things and one word of warning. Here they are. Number one, don't fear death because those who die are still alive. When we die, we are not going to cease to exist. In fact, 
we are going to continue living, but we're going to experience a much greater reality than anything we have ever known before. That's the point of using sleep, I believe, as a euphemism for death. It describes exactly what happens. Number two, don't fear death because some believers will not die but witness Christ's return. You know, Christ could come in our lifetime. I've known a lot of people in my life who are sure the Lord's going to come back in my lifetime. You ever heard anybody say that? Yeah. Now, we have to remember, Paul thought that too. (laughs) And the Apostle John thought that too. And people of every generation have thought that, but it could be our generation. One word of wise living that I heard a long time ago was, well, then how do we live in light of that? Well, number one, Live like Jesus is coming today. So if Jesus is coming today, if Jesus were to come today, how is it that you'd like to be living when he comes? Yesterday, and I hadn't planned on using this as an illustration, so hopefully it makes sense. Yesterday, um, I heard a story about um, Pete Rose. Pete Rose holds the record for the most hits in Major League Baseball history. And someone once asked Pete Rose about how did, he, how did he set that record? How did it happen? And he said it was simple, that over the course of his career, he didn't have one wasted at bat. He didn't waste one at bat. When we think about our lives, we think about the way that we live. What if the Lord comes back today? What do you want to be doing when he comes back? What kind of life do you want to be living when he comes back? That's the first part of it. The second one is, we live like he's coming back today, but we need to plan like he's coming back in a thousand years. So we need to live wisely. We need to be good stewards of our time, knowing that there might be generations more of Christians who will come after us, who will proclaim the gospel. Third thing is this. Don't fear death because we will be united with those that we love. Now, oftentimes, oftentimes we want to de-emphasize this aspect of it. Why is that? Why do churches often de-emphasize this aspect of eternity? It's because sometimes this is all people think about when they think about eternity. That's being reunited with people that they've loved. When the real goal of eternity is to spend eternity with Christ... That's the real allure. But one of the things that Paul is making abundantly clear here is that we will be united with believers from all ages past. We will be united with those that we love. And we will, we will be there in the presence of God forever. And I, and I love that about the Lord. You know, the Lord loves his creatures. I don't know if you've ever had a pet. But when you have a little pet, you want to take care of that pet. You want that pet to be happy. And I'm not saying that we're pets. We're not. But, but God made us to be relational with one another. God made us to, to, to have people in our life, whether it be family or friends or people that are special to us. He designed us for that. He encourages it. He wants us to experience that. And, and so we have this picture that for all eternity, we will be united with those that we love who are in Christ. The third, the third, or the next one is this, and this is, this is um, important. We, we don't 
fear death because we will live forever with Christ. And this is the best part of eternity. This is what we were made for. This is far better than being reunited with people that we love. It'll be, we will be in the presence of our Redeemer. We will see Christ. We will see the nail-pierced hands. We will see the, see the scar in his side. We'll see the scars in his feet. We will, we will hear his voice. We will talk to him. Uh, we will, we will, I, I believe that we're going to hear him sing. What will that be like to be in the presence of Jesus? He will know your name. Your Redeemer will love you and care for you. Um, Augustine, the church father, he wrote this about this. He said, God himself, who is the author of virtue, shall be our reward. As there is nothing greater or better than God himself, God has promised us himself. God shall be the end of all of our desires, who will be seen without end. Love without cloy. By the way, I had to look that up. Anybody ever hear the word cloy before? If you're going to translate something from Latin, don't use the word cloy. Okay, that's just a pet peeve. But, so, that, so cloy means something that's initially pleasing, but it becomes distasteful and in excess. So, so uh, there'll never come a place where, where we'll have so much of a good thing that we'll be tired of it, the presence of God. And praised without weariness. Think about that. God himself, who is the author of virtue, shall be our reward. As there is nothing greater or better than God himself, God has promised us himself. He shall, God shall be the end of all of our desires, who will be seen without end, loved without cloy, and praised without weariness. What a glorious promise. This leads to our fifth encouragement, and that is, is that we must not fear death because we will forever experience what we were made for. You know why we go through this life and we have so many frustrations and difficulties that we deal with and we say, oh, not that again. Oh, I wish I didn't have to go through this situation. Or we think about things in the past that you've been through and you say, oh, why did I have to deal with that? The reason why we feel that way is because we weren't made for this. God made us to live in relationship with him. God made us to live without sin. God made us to experience the the, the fullness of, of what, it was, what it is like to, to be in the presence of God, to, to see him, to hear him, to experience, imagine that, um, peace without end in our hearts, to experience love without end in our hearts, to experience joy in our hearts without end. Can you imagine? To, to have that euphoric experience that, that uh, we have experienced, maybe on the top of a mountain or whatever it is, and, or maybe in the presence of those that we love, and to, to have that euphoric experience, that experience will be our experience for all eternity with him. That's what we were made for, and that's why this world is so frustrated, frustrating. But one day we will be in his presence we will be with him forever, and none of these other things that interrupt the way that we were designed to live will be here in the world, and we will experience him in his fullness. But there is a, there is a word of warning here. There is a word of warning, and it is this. We should fear death if we do not belong to Christ. We should fear death if we do not belong to Christ. There are some fears that are legitimate fears. We go into an alley, and we see someone who might look a little dangerous in the alley at night. We feel a little frightened. There are legitimate fears. And certainly, 
Eternity without Christ is something, is something to be afraid of because the Bible is very clear about what hell is. Hell is eternal separation from God. It is outer darkness. It is a place where the worm does not die and the fire does not go out. It is a place, worst of all, that is devoid of the manifest presence of God. And the common grace that we experience in this life, the Bible says that God allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God, God, um, God is one who makes provisions for all people. God gives joy to all people. God, God allows us to enjoy the world that he's made. In eternity, separated from God, there will be none of that. For some people, this world is the most of heaven they will ever experience. And for others, it will be the most of hell. Now, as I talk about this, this is, this is not something I enjoy talking about or reveling, and it reminds me of the story of a guy named Robert Murray McShane. He was, a, he was a Scottish preacher in the early part of the 1800s, and, and um, he, was, he was out for a walk with his friend who was also a pastor named Andrew Bonar, and as they were walking along, Robert Murray McShane asked Andrew Bonar, what did you preach on yesterday? And Andrew Bonar said, I preached on the, on the terrors of hell. And Robert Murray McShane looked at him and he said, did you do it with tears in your eyes? This is, this is the reality without God. But that's why God sent his son to be our provision, to be our savior, so that through faith in him we can live and experience eternal life. A.W. Tozer was asked, where does a man go when he dies? And his answer was simple. Man goes where he belongs. If, if we did not want Christ in this life, then we're not going to get him in the life to come. But one of the beautiful promises of the Bible is, is that anyone who puts their trust in him will not be put to shame. You place your trust in him, you come to him, you turn from your sin, and you turn to Christ. He will save you, he will rescue you, he will give you new life, he will give you hope for all eternity. And you will experience these joys that he's talked about in these, in these verses. You will see Christ with your, with your own eyes, your Savior. There was a doctor, old story, a long time ago, when doctors made house calls. There's a doctor who went to a, visit a person who was terminally sick. And he was checking on this person. He brought his dog with him to this person's house. And the person was in bed in an upper room in the house. And uh, as the man was laying there in the bed, he asked his doctor, who's a Christian doctor, Doc, can you tell me about heaven, what it'll be like? And the doctor was fumbling along. He didn't know what to say. And he said, um, and, and then just at that moment when he was trying to explain something, his dog had made it up the stairs in this man's house and started scratching at the door. And he said, he said to the man, he said, um, he said, you know, that's my, that's my dog, don't you? And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, what is he doing? He's scratching at the door. And, and he said, well, what does he want to do? He says, he he said, well, he wants to come into the room. He said to the man, does he know what's in the room? He said, no. Well, why do he want to come into the room? Well, the answer is simple. Because he heard the voice of his master in the room. And as long as his master was there, everything else is okay. We don't know everything about what lies on the other side, but one thing we do know is our master is there. And if our master is there, it's going to be okay. Do you know him? Have you come to a place where you've trusted him as your savior, 
where you have believed on his work for you, that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sin, save us from what separated us from God. That's why Jesus came. He was our substitute. Because we are sinners, God must punish sin. He is a just God, but he sent his son in our place to go to the cross so that he punished us for him. So all that we have to do in order to receive this forgiveness is trust in the saving work of Jesus on our behalf. And when we come to him, repent of our sins, place our faith and trust in him. He will wash away our sin, wash away our guilt, place his Holy Spirit in our life, and give us through faith in Jesus an assurance that one day we will be with our master forever and ever and ever. And I can't think of anything that matters more than that. Do you know where you stand with the Lord today? Trust him and he'll save you. Let's pray. Oh, Father,